0: What is up, fam? Happy New Year, and welcome to Beyond Meaning, the Hidden Science of Thoughts. I'm your host, Sai Oikeosis. So we're kicking off this new year with a bunch of new ideas and a pretty long intuitive card reading. I've got one, two, three, four, five five decks in front of me and we're going to do a comprehensive reading but first before we do that i have a couple of things i want to mention a couple of ideas i want to share and some new concepts that are going to expand our pre-established thinking model lately we've been focusing on audiobooks and audio presentations and while i still intend to make time and space for that I actually wanted to share these ideas because they're fresh new ideas that I've been blessed with developing or more so tasked with the tasked with developing or whatever. I don't know. New ideas. And I mean, those are always fun for me. So I take precedence over that. I'm guessing you pick up what I'm saying right now. But yeah, I mean... Before I get into that, I want to share a little bit of backstory. Um, in the last episode, the year in review, I mentioned that I was going to run that marathon. And fam, I ran that shit. It was so good. I actually beat my time by by like over 10 minutes. I, I wanted to run it in what about... Let me see. I wanted to run it in 145. I ended up running it at 135. So that was a very comfortable seven-minute mile pace. Um, you know, nothing, nothing crazy, but still top 3% of my, my, uh, top 3% of all runners. So, I mean, that's pretty epic for me. Um, extremely epic for me. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give myself the credit I deserve. I've been working pretty hard and by pretty hard, I mean really hard. I've been grinding, being consistent, eating right, hitting the gym and just on my shit. And well, actually the reason I'm saying this is because of the fact that, it, these big ideas actually came to me during the run and uh, I was very grateful I knew that like I knew that like running this marathon was going to be well to be honest it was a half marathon but still I mean running this running this experience or this experience was going to be very beneficial for me not just physically or emotionally but also spiritually and mentally in the sense that I knew something was going to come like I knew that like I was going to be able to expand a couple of ideas a few concepts and it was just going to hit me because it's like well I mean you're just focused for over an hour on nothing but your breath ideas are going to start to hit you and you're going to start to meditate on certain tasks and I mean I I had set the intention to develop or to expand upon a couple of things, and I mean, I was able to cross-reference them and tie them back into our pre-established thinking model, which is the essence of beyond meaning, the hidden science of thought. Um, Yeah, uh, Where do I begin? So I've been, okay, before I really get into it, it's just, it's going to be a lucid conversation. I chose not to write anything down. Uh, I might pause, write some stuff down and just resume recording later. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I want to, for the most part, ow, oh, excuse me. I just bumped my leg on my desk. Um, for the most part, just explain it lucidly as if I would in a conversation rather than like, right. But, um, let's pick up from self-awareness. Let's talk about self-awareness and then we'll tie that into the essence of what we're trying to discuss um so self-awareness right we we become self-aware at a very young age like we gain consciousness from the moment we're born but we gain self-awareness like around seven seven months to a year if my it's of my psychology developmental psych exact being up um but a couple of us uh, granted a handful of us especially those of us that are really interested in this type of stuff uh, had to kind of develop our self-awareness a bit faster than other people in the sense that like we had to become self-aware of ourselves and the needs of the people around us and we usually usually that happens if you grew up in like a in like a toxic household and if you were basically taking care of your parents or actually just tailoring your emotional emotional state in reference to their emotional state because of the fact that well maybe it was fear or it was anxiety or whatever it was right so that forced you to be hyper aware at a very young age or forced well, i'm speaking from personal preference or from personal experience um what i've learned and how this has impacted me right uh and so through that you've uh developed a personality that is uh, hyper aware of everything that's going on around you and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a bad thing when you are tailoring, like, you know, when you're using that information as a way to change your authenticity because of the fact that while well, you're possibly nervous or you're in a fight or flight response state that forces you to be aware of essentially all the emotional triggers. And while well, it's tied it back to the limbic system, as we've discussed so many times on this show, specifically during season two. Um, the limbic system is essentially the emotional regulator within the within our brain uh, it's tied uh, with the perineal, no the pineal gland. excuse me. So essentially what the limbic system does in this case is it connects you to the emotional state of the environment around you and based off of the emotions that are present you're going to either, Resonate with them or going to be in dissonance with them, depending on whether or not they are in alignment with the type of individual that you are. And for people that were highly empathetic and had to adapt a more advanced state of self awareness at a young age than, like, you know, what they had to, they had to grow up fast. In other words, they molded themselves to the emotional resonance that was in that state of being, be it a good emotional resonance loop or a negative emotional resonance loop, the person would essentially put on a mask in order to try to balance the emotional resonance loop. And actually, I think that for the most part, people who had to do something like this were just surrounded by negative emotional loops, and they knew that it was just deteriorating the environment. So they tried to fix it themselves, and I mean, I guess that's kind of like the healer archetype, but um, it's not supposed to be that way. You know, that's not the way to fix the emotional resonance loop because of the fact that you lose yourself in the process. But anyway, moving forward, the the sense of self-awareness that comes with you is very, uh, it's very personal, right? And there's a new concept that I want to introduce into the show called the Cartesian ego Well, if one is not averse to using a science fiction scenario, one way of doing this reasoning appears in the path-breaking book, Reasons and Persons by the Oxford philosopher, Derek Parfit. Here's how Parfit poses this riddle. I enter the teleporter. I have been to Mars before, but only by the old method, a spaceship journey taking several weeks. This machine will send me at the speed of light. I merely have to press the green button Like others, I am nervous. Will it work? I remind myself what I have been told to expect. When I press the button, I shall lose consciousness and then wake up at what seems a moment later. In fact, I shall have been unconscious for about an hour. The scanner here on Earth will destroy my brain and body while recording the exact state of all my cells. It will then transmit this information by radio, traveling at the speed of light. The message will take three minutes to reach the replicator on Mars. This will then create... Out of new matter, a brain and body exactly like mine, it will be in this body that I shall wake up. Though I believe that this is what will happen, I still hesitate. But then I remember seeing my wife grin when at breakfast today, I revealed my nervousness and she reminded me that she has been often teletransported and that there is nothing to worry because there is nothing wrong with her. I press the button, and as predicted, I lose and seem at once to regain consciousness, but now in a different cubicle. Examining my new body, I find no change at all. Even the cut on my upper lip from this morning's shave is still there. Several years pass, during which I am often teletransported. I am now back in the cubicle, ready for another trip to Mars. But this time, when I press the green button, I do not lose consciousness. There is a whirring sound, then silence. I leave the cubicle and say to the attendant, it's not working, what did I do wrong? It's working, he replies, handing me a printed card. This reads, the new scanner records your blueprint without destroying your brain and body. We hope that you will welcome the opportunities with this technical advance. The attendant tells me that I am one of the first people to use the new scanner. He adds that if I stay an hour, I can use the intercom to see and talk to myself on Mars. Wait a minute. I reply, if I'm here, I can't also be on Mars. Someone politely coughs, a white-coated man who asked to speak to me in private. We go to his office where he tells me to sit down and pauses. Then he says, I'm afraid that we're having problems with the new scanner. It records your blueprint just as accurately as you will see when you talk to yourself on Mars, but it seems to be damaging the cardiac system which it scans. Judging from the results so far though, you will be quite healthy on Mars. Here on Earth, you must expect cardiac failure within the next few days. The attendant leader calls me to the intercom. On the screen, I see myself just as I do in the mirror every morning, but there are two differences. On the screen, I am not left-right reversed, and while I stand here speechless, I can see and hear myself in the studio on Mars starting to speak. Since my replica knows that I am about to die, He tries to console me with the same thoughts with which I recently tried to console a dying friend. It is sad to learn, on the receiving end, how unconsoling these thoughts are. My replica assures me that he will take up my life where I left it off. He loves my wife and together they will care for my children. And he will finish the book that I am writing. Besides having all of my drafts, he has all of my intentions. I must admit that he can finish my book as well as I could. All these facts console me a little. Dying when I know that I shall have a replica is not quite as bad as simply dying. Even so, I shall soon lose consciousness forever. So the reason I'm choosing to share this story is because of the fact that it really illustrates the concept that I'm trying to propel. And I think that it's better to proceed with an example such as this one, rather than just to try to explain it with like abstract thoughts and abstract context. But yeah, so in the first part, we worry along with Parfit whether he will truly exist again. And after he is atomized on Earth and the signals carrying his ultra-detailed blueprint reached Mars and directed the construction of a new body, we fear that a newly built person will merely be someone who looks precisely like and thinks precisely like Parfit, but is not Parfit. Soon, however, we are relieved to find out that our worries are unfounded. Parfit himself made it down to the last tiny scratch. Great. And how do we know that he did, though? Well, it's because he told us so. But which he is it that gives us the good news? The philosopher-author? Or is it Derek Parfit, the intrepid space voyager? It is Parfit, the space voyager. As it happens, Parfit, the philosopher, is just so spinning a good yarn, doing his best to make it sound terribly realistic. But we soon find out that, in fact, he doesn't believe in several parts of his own story. The second episode in his fantasy starts out by contradicting the first one. When we find out that the new scanner is in contrast to the old one, doesn't destroy the original, we go right along with the tactic idea that Parfit, the intrepid space voyager, had not voyaged anywhere. We don't question his stepping out of the cubicle on Earth because he's still here. Oh, but what mindless pushovers we are. Whereas we bought right into the teleportation equals travel theme of episode one, falling for it hook line and sinker we seem in episode two to have unthinkingly taken the path of least resistance which runs something like this if there are two different things that look like think like and quack like Derek Parfit and if one of those things is located where we last saw Parfit and the other one is then seems further away then by god the close one is obviously the real one and the far away one is just a copy a clone, a counterfeit, an imposter, a fake. This already is plenty of food for thought. If the copy on Mars is a fake in episode 2, why wasn't it a fake in episode 1? Why were we such thinkers when we read episode 1? We naively bought into his wife's reassuring smile at breakfast, and then, when he stepped out of the Martian cubicle, the telltale nick of his face convinced us beyond all doubt we took his word for it, that it was indeed he who was stepping out of the cubicle, but what else could we have done or expected? Was the newborn body going to step out of the cubicle and proclaim, Oh horrors! I'm not me. I'm someone else who merely looks like me and who has all my memories stretching all the way back to childhood and even my memory of breakfast only a few moments ago with my wife. I'm just a sham. Oh, but such a good one. Of course, the newly built Martian is not going to utter something incoherent like that because he would have no way of knowing that he is a fake. He would believe for all the world that he is the original Derek Parfit only moments ago disintegrating in the scanner on Earth. After all, that's what his brain would tell him since it's identical to Derek Parfit's brain. This shows that we have to treat claims of personal identity even ones coming straight from the first person's mouth with extreme caution. Well then... Given our no-nonsense attitude, what should we think about episode two? We have been told that Parfit, the would-be space voyager, instead stepped out of his cubicle on Earth and with heart damage. But how do we know that that one is Parfit? Why didn't Parfit, the storyteller, tell us a story from the vantage point of the new martian who also calls himself Derek Parfit? Suppose the story had been told this way. The moment I stepped out of the Martian cubicle, I was told the terrible news that the other parfit, that poor fellow way down on earth, had suffered cardiac damage and beaming me up here. I was devastated to hear it. Soon he and I were talking on the phone, and I found myself in the odd position of trying to console him just as I had recently consoled a dying friend. If it had been recounted sufficiently smoothly, we might not have been able to resist the thought that this body, the Mars-born one, is really David Parfit. Indeed, Derek Parfit, the skilled philosopher-storyteller, might even have gotten us to imagine that the Earth-bound body with the damaged heart was merely a pretender to the unique soul linked by birth and by divine decree to the name Derek Parfit. It seems that the way in which a science fiction scenario is related is crucial in determining our intuitions about its credibility. This is a point that Dan Dennett has made many times in his discussion of philosophers crafty thought experiments. Indeed, Dan Dennett calls such carefully crafted fables intuition pumps, and he knows very well whereof he speaks since he has dreamt of and drank upon some of the most insight providing intuition pumps in the field of philosophy of mind. The key question raised by Parfit's tale is this. Where is space voyager Derek Parfit really after the teletransportation has taken place in episode two? Put otherwise, which of the two claimants to being Parfit is really Parfit? In episode one, Parfit, the storyteller, plants a most plausible seeming answer, but then in episode two, he just as plausibly undermines that answer. You're probably asking yourself, which of the two would I be? To my mind, One cannot claim to have said anything significant about the riddle of consciousness if one cannot propose and defend to some sort of answer to this extremely natural seeming and burning question. I think that by now, you know my answer to the question, but maybe not. In any case, I'll let you ponder the issue for a moment. And meanwhile, I'll go on and tell you more or less how Parfit senses this matter. This issue lies at the very core of Parfit's book, and the explanation of his position occupies about 100 pages. The key notion to which he is opposed to is what he dubs Cartesian Pure Ego, or Cartesian Ego for short. To put it in my words, a Cartesian ego constitutes one exact quantum of pure soul, also known as personal identity, and it is 100% indivisible and undilutable. In short, it is what makes you be you and me be me. My Cartesian ego is mine and no one else's, has been from birth and will be to death. And that's that. It's my very own, completely private, unshared and unshareable first-person world. It's the subject of my experience. It's my totally unique inner light. You know what I mean. I have to admit, Parenthetically, that every time I see the phrase Cartesian ego, although my eyes perceive only one G, there's some part of me inadvertently hallucinating another G, and the image of an egg bubbles up in my brain, a Cartesian ego, if you'll permit. A beautifully formed egg with a pristine white shell protecting a perfectly spherical and infinitely precious yolk at its core. In my strange, distorted imagery, that yolk is the secret of human identity, And alas, Parfit's central mission in his book is to mercilessly crush the whole egg and with it, the sacred yolk. There are two questions that Parfit does his best to answer. The first one is, when Parfit is teleported to Mars in episode one, is his Cartesian ego teleported along with him or is it destroyed along with his body? The second question, seemingly more urgent and confusing, is this. When Parfit is teleported to Mars in episode two, Where does his Cartesian ego go? Could it possibly go to Mars, abandoning him on Earth? In that case, who is it that remains on Earth? Or conversely, does Parfit's Cartesian ego simply stay put on Earth? In that case, who, if anyone, is that debarks from the cubicle on Mars? note that we are conflating the word who or the phrase who it is with the notion of a specific uniquely identifiable cartesian ego the temptation to ask such questions and to believe that these questions have objectively correct answers is nearly irresistible but nonetheless the nearly universal intuitions that give us rise to that temptation are what parfit is out to crush in his book to be more specific Parfit staunchingly resists the idea that the concept of personal identity makes sense. To be sure, it makes sense in the everyday world that we inhabit, a world without telecloning or fanciful cut-and-paste operations on our brains and minds. The fact is, we all more or less take for granted this notion of Cartesian ego in our daily lives. It is built into our common sense into our languages and into our cultural backgrounds as profoundly, as tactically, as seamlessly and invisibly as is the notion that time passes or the notion that things that move preserve their identity. But Parfit is concerned with investigating how well the primordial notion of Cartesian egos stands up under extreme and unprecedented pressures. As a careful thinker, he is doing something analogous to what Einstein did when he imagined himself moving at or near the speed of light. He is pushing the limits of classical notions. And like Einstein, he finds that classical worldviews do not always work in worlds that are very different from those in which they were born and grew. In his hundred or so pages of musings on this issue, Parfit analyzes many thought experiments some dreamt up by himself, and some by other contemporary philosophers. And his analysis is always keen and clear. I have no intention to reproduce here those thought experiments or his analysis, but I will summarize what his conclusions are. The essence of his position is that when pushed to its limits, personal identity becomes an indeterminable notion. In extreme circumstances, such as episode 2, the question, which one of them I, has no valid answer. Our intuitions as we grow up on planet earth have not prepared us for anything in the least like a non-destructive teleportation scenario and so we clamor for a simple straightforward answer yet somehow we also intuit that none will be forthcoming after all we could invent episode three featuring a destructive teleportation scenario as in episode one but with signals simultaneously sent out to receiving stations on venus and on mars In this scenario, shortly after the destruction of the original Parfit body and brain, two brand new Parfits, both complete with shaving nicks, would be assembled more or less simultaneously on the two planets, and now there really doesn't seem to be any valid claim of primacy for either one above the other. Unless, of course, you argue that the first one finished should get to claim the honor of the Cartesian ego. But in that case, we can simply posit that they are assembled in synchronicity, thus bearing that easy-to-escape root. To our everyday, down-home minds, it is very stark and very simple. One of the Parfits is a fake. We cannot imagine being in two places at once, so we think. Either I've got to be the Venus one, or the Mars one, or neither one. And yet, none of these answers is the least bit satisfying to our classical intuitions. Parfit's own answer is actually closer to the thought that I brusquely dismissed in the previous paragraph. That we are in two places at once. I say it's closer to that answer rather than saying that it is that answer because Parfit's view, like mine, is that these things seem so black and white to us actually comes in shades of gray. It's just that in ordinary circumstances, things are always so close to being pure black and white that any hints of grayness remain hidden from view not only thanks to the obvious external fact that we all have separate physical brains housed in separate physical skulls, but also thanks to an extensive web of linguistic and cultural conventions that collectively and subliminally insist that we each are exactly one person, and which implicitly discourage us from imagining any kind of blending, overlapping, or sharing of souls. There's also, I cannot deny it, an absolute certainty deep down in each of us, that I cannot be in two places at once. Parfit takes great pains to give other kinds of evidence about the possibility of spread out identity. In fact, he eschews the term personal identity, preferring to replace it by a different term, one less likely to conjure up images of indivisible soul quanta, analogous to unique factory-issued serial numbers or government-issued ID cards. The term Parfit refers to is psychological continuity, by which he means what I would tend to call psychological similarity. In other words, although he doesn't propose anything that would smack of mathematics, Parfit essentially proposes an abstract distance function, what mathematicians would call a metric, between personalities and personality space, or between brains, although at what structural level brains would have to be described in order for this, and I quote, distance calculation to take place is never specified, and it is hard to imagine what that level might be. Using some sort of mind-to-mind metric, I would be very close to the person I was yesterday, slightly less close to the person I was two days ago, and so forth. In other words, although there is a great degree of overlap between the individual self, we nonetheless standardly choose to consider them identical because it's so convenient and so natural and so easy. It makes life much more simpler. This convention allows us to give things, both animate and inanimate, fixed names, and to talk about them from one day to the next without constantly having to update our lexicon. Moreover, this convention is ingrained in us when we are infants at about the same Pygetian developmental stage as that in which we learn that when a ball rolls behind a box, it still exists, even though it's not visible and may reappear even a second or two later on the other side. To dismantle unconscious beliefs that are so deeply rooted and that have such a degree of primacy in our world view is an extremely daunting and bold undertaking, compared in subtlety and difficulty to what Einstein accomplished in creating special relativity, and what a whole generation of brilliant physicists, with Einstein at their core, collectively accomplished in creating quantum mechanics. The new view that Parfit proposes is a radical Reperception of what is to be And in certain ways it is extremely disturbing And in others it is extremely liberating Parfit even devotes a page or two To explaining how this radical new view On human existence has freed him up And profoundly changed his attitudes Towards his life, his death, his loved ones And other people in general In chapter 12 of Reasons and Persons, boldly entitled, Why Our Identity Is Not What Matters, there is a series of penetrating musings, all of which have wonderfully provocative titles. Since I so much admire this book and its style, I will simply quote those section titles for you here, hoping thereby to whet your appetite to read it. Here they are, Divided Minds, What Explains the Unity of Consciousness, What Happens When I Divide, What matters when I divide? Why there is no criterion of identity that can meet two plausible requirements, Wittgenstein and Buddha. Am I essentially my brain? And finally, is the true view unbelievable? Even though all eight of these sections are rife with insight, it is the last section that I admire the most, because in the end, Parfit asks himself if he really believes in the edifice he has just built. It is as if Albert Einstein had just realized that his own ideas would bring Newtonian mechanics crashing down in rubble and then paused to ask himself, do I really have such deep faith in my own mind's pathways that I can believe in this bizarre, intuition-defining conclusion which I have reached? Am I not being enormously arrogant in rejecting a whole self-consistent web of interlocking ideas that were carefully worked out by two or three centuries worth of extraordinary physicists who came before me? And although Einstein was exceedingly modest throughout his lifetime, his answers to himself was in effect, yes, I do have this strange faith in my own mind's correctness. Nature has to be this way, no matter what other people have said before me. I have somehow been given the opportunity to glimpse the inner logic of nature more deeply and more accurately than anyone else before me has. I am unaccountably lucky in this fact, and though I take no personal credit for it, I do wish to publish it so that I may share this valuable vision with others. Parfit is far more prudent than this. His conclusions, to my mind, are just as radical as those of Einstein, although I find it a bit of a stretch to imagine radical ideas about the ineffability of personal identity leading to any marvelous technological consequences, whereas Einstein's of course did. But he is not quite as convinced of them as Einstein must have been. He feels confident, but not absolutely confident, of his edifice of thought. He doesn't think that it will start to shake and soon tumble down if he stands on it, but then again he admits that it just might as well do so. Let us hear him express himself on this topic in his own words. The philosopher mind of Thomas Nagel once claimed that even if the reductionist view is true, it is so psychologically impossible for us to believe this. I shall, therefore, briefly review my arguments given above. I shall then ask whether I can honestly claim to believe my conclusions. If I can, I shall assume that I am not unique. There would be at least some other people who can believe the truth. A few pages later. I have now reviewed the main arguments for this reductionist view. Do I find it impossible to believe this view? What I find is this. I can believe this view as an intellectual or reflective level. I am convinced by the arguments in favor of this view, but I think it likely that at some other level, I shall always have doubts. I suspect that reviewing my arguments would never wholly remove my doubts. At the reflective or intellectual level, I would remain convinced that the reductionist view is true. But at some lower level, I would still be inclined to believe that there must always be a real difference between some future person's being, me, and his being, someone else. Something similarly is true when I look through a window at the top of a skyscraper. I know that I am in no danger, but looking down from this dizzying height, I am afraid. I would have a similar irrational fear if I was about to press the green button. It is hard to be serenely confident in my reductionist conclusions. It is hard to believe that personal identity is not what matters. If tomorrow someone will be in agony, it is hard to believe that it could be an empty question whether this agony will be felt by me. And it is hard to believe that if I am about to lose consciousness, there may be no answer to the question, am I about to die? I must say... I find Parfit's willingness to face and share his self-doubts with his reader to be extremely rare and wonderfully refreshing. In the last paragraph quoted above, Parfit alludes to thought experiments invented by philosopher Bernard Williams and partially by himself. In other words, invented by a Williams-Parfit hybrid with who we can call Bernick-Wolfitz in which he is about to undergo a special type of neurosurgery whose exact nature is determined by a numerical parameter, namely, how many switches will be thrown. What do the individual switches do? Each one of them converts one of Parfit's personality traits into a different personality trait, belonging to none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. And I literally mean none other than, as I will shortly explain. For example, one switch makes Parfit far more irascible, Another switch removes his repugnance at the idea of seeing people killed and so forth. Note that it is in his previous sentence I used the proper noun parfit and the pronouns his, which presumably is an unambiguous reference to parfit. However, the whole question here is whether or not such usages as are legitimate. If switch after switch were thrown converting Parfit far more and more into Napoleon, at what stage would he, or rather, at what stage would this slowly morphing person simply be Napoleon? As I have already made clear, asking exactly where along the lines the switchover would take place makes no sense from Parfit's point of view for what matters is psychological continuity. And that is a feature that comes in all shades of gray. If not a zero out of one matter, not an all or nothing, a person can be partially Derek Parfit and partially Napoleon Bonaparte and drifting from the one to the other as the switches are thrown. And this doesn't merely mean that this person is becoming more and more like Napoleon Bonaparte. It means that this person is really becoming Bonaparte himself. In Parfit's view, the Cartesian ego of Napoleon is not indivisible, nor is that of Derek Parfit. Rather, it is as if there were two, a slider on a wire, and the two individuals can be merged or morphed arbitrarily by sliding that slider into any desired position on the wire. The result is a hybrid person, a tenth or a third or a halfway of a three quarters of the way between the two ends. Whatever proportions one wishes, ranging from Derek Parfit to Darren Parfity, or to Deron Parfittier, to Delon Parfittier, or to Doyleon Parparate, to Deolian Panaparte, to Napoleon Ponaparte, to Napoleon Bonaparte. Most people, unlike Parfitt, want there to be and are convinced that there must be at each point along the spectrum of cases, a sharp yes or no answer to the question. Is this person Derek Parfit? This is the classical view, of course, the views that take for granted the notion of Parfit's own Cartesian ego. And so most people are putting it into the awkward position of having to say that there would be a a particular spot along the wire at which all of a sudden, without warning, at that instant when the slider passes it, the Cartesian ego of Parfit would poof out of existence to be replaced by that of Napoleon Bonaparte where only a moment ago we had been dealing with a somewhat personality-modified Derek Parfit, but still, and all a Derek Parfit who genuinely felt Derek Parfitt's feelings. Now, we suddenly have a modified Napoleon Bonaparte, and he feels Napoleon's feelings and not that of Parfit's whatsoever. I might add, by the way, that I think the word who is sometimes granted a bit too much subliminal power, in much the same way as the personal pronouns, and I quote he and she, in the 1980s, Pamela McCorduck wrote a history of artificial intelligence with the provocative and ingenious title, Machines Who Think. The word who in the title conjures up an image radically different from our knee-jerk associations with standard machines, such as can openers, refrigerators, typewriters, computers, etc. It suggests that with at least certain machines, there is someone in there. Or as Thomas Nagel would say, there is something it is like to be that machine. It implicitly suggests, once again, a sharp black and white dichotomy between a set of hypothetical machines that think and a different set of hypothetical machines who think. It has often seemed to me that ultimately, when I am thinking about who my closest friends are, it all comes down to how they are how they smile, how they talk, how they laugh, how they listen, how they suffer, how they share, and so on. I think to myself that the innermost essence of each friend is made up of thousands of such hows, and that's the collection of hows is the answer, the full answer to who is this person. It may seem that this is It may seem that this is a third-person perspective and that it takes away or even denies the whole first-person perspective. It may seem to shortchange or even to casually dismiss the, and I quote, I. I don't think so, however, for I think that even to itself, that is an all I. I don't think so, however, for I think that even to itself, that is all an I is. The rub is, an I is very good at convincing itself that it is a lot more than that. In fact, that is the entire business that the word I is in. I has a vested interest in continuing the scam, even if it is his own victim. At long last, we return to the Venus versus Mars enigma of episode 3. I have already told you that Parfit somehow sidesteps the question by simply denying the existence of Cartesian egos and thus saying that the question has no meaningful answer. But in his book, he also refers quite often to what he terms double survival, which means essentially that he is a simultaneously in two places at once. More than once, he writes that double survival is hardly equivalent to death, and that the number two should not be conflated with the number zero. So what is he really saying? Is he saying that there is no answer to the question, or is he saying the fact he has been doubled and that there are now two Derek Parfitts? It's hard for me to figure that out since I think he says both things often enough that one could argue it either way. But where do I come down on this issue? I think I come down to the two me's side. At first, this almost sounds as if I am embracing the Cartesian ego theory, just imagining that the egg is cloned and two identical Cartesian egos come to exist, one on Venus and one on Mars. But then, the which one is me, it sounds as if I haven't answered the question at all or as if I want to have my egg on Mars and eat it too on Venus. In order to regain some semblance of consistency, I need to... Return to the I notion that is fundamentally in the end a hallucination Let's let episode 3, my teleportation scenario with fresh copies on Venus and Mars and no copies left on Earth Apply to me instead of Parfit In that case, each of the new brains, the one on Mars and the one on Venus Is convinced that it is me It feels just like it always felt to be me The same old urge to say I am here and not there zooms up in both brains as automatically as when someone taps my knee and my leg jerks upwards. But my knee-jerk reflexes or not, the truth of the matter is that there is no thing called, and I quote, I. No hard marble, no precious yolk protected by a Cartesian eggshell. There are just tendencies and inclinations and habits, including verbal ones. In the end, we have to believe both I, as they say they are, this one here is me, at least to the extent that we believe the me is here and the you is there. This one here is me, saying this and insisting on this truth is just as a tendency, an inclination, a habit. In fact, a knee-jerk reflex, and it is no more than that, even though it seems to be a great deal more than that. Ultimately, the I is a hallucination. And yet paradoxically it is the most precious thing we own as dan dennett points out in consciousness explained an "I" is a little like a bill of paper money it feels as if it is worth a great deal but ultimately it is just a social convention a kind of illusion that we all tacitly agree on without ever having been asked and which despite being illusory supports our entire economy. And yet the bill is just a piece of paper with no intrinsic worth at all. Okay, sit with that for a minute. We're gonna transition into something else. Um, So yeah, if being in two or more places at once seems to make no sense, think about reversing the roles of space and time. That is, consider that you have no trouble imagining that you will exist tomorrow and also the next day. Which one of those future people will really be you? How can two different yous exist? Both claiming your name ah you reply but i will shortly be getting there like a train pulling through different stations but that just begs the same question why is the same train if in the meantime it has dropped some passengers off and picked others up perhaps changed the car to maybe even its locomotive it is simply called train 641 and that's why it is the same train it's a linguistic convention and a very good one too It is a very natural convection in the classical world in which we exist. If train 641, heading east from Milano, always were to split up in Verona into two pieces, one that headed north to Bolzano and one that continued eastwards to Venice, then we would probably not call either half train 641 any longer, but would give them two separate numbers. But we could also call them train 641A and 641B, or even just leave them both as train 641. It might happen after all that upon reaching Bolzano, the northern half always veers suddenly eastward and likewise that upon reaching Venice, the eastern half always veers suddenly northward and the two halves always rejoin and fuse together and Buluno on their way or rather on its way to Udin. You may object that trains have no inner perspective on that matter, that 641 is just a third person label rather than a first person point of view. All I can say is that is very tempting viewpoint but it is to be resisted trains who roll and trains that roll are the same thing at least if they have sufficiently rich representational systems that allow them to wrap around a self-representation most trains today don't in fact none of them do so we don't usually give them the benefit of the who pronoun but maybe someday they will and then we will However, the transition from one pronoun to the other won't be sharp and sudden. It will be gradual, like the fading of the belief in the Cartesian ego as people grow in sophistication. And with all of this being said, the tone that you might be thinking at this point is more along the lines of, well, should I or should I not believe in the Cartesian ego or is it or is it not valid or any sort of things that are along that sort of nature? And, you know, that's actually the intention and the point of it all. You're supposed to internalize it for yourself and make it your own thing. You're supposed to attach what you've just heard and you're supposed to kind of bounce it off of your current worldview and your intuitive understanding of what you believe to be the actual foundation of where you begin and where others, where you begin and where you end, etc. cetera. So it's not really any sort of black and white as we've just discussed. It's more of a gray area and a gray area where you can choose to be on either end of the slider. It's up to you and there's ultimately no right or wrong answer since it's obviously just philosophy. Uh, But it's worth exploring and it's worth challenging your pre-held beliefs and seeing where they take you. But with this tone being said, I would like to transition into the reading that I said I wanted to do. Um, I do have five decks. Uh, we're all going to draw, or we're going to draw at least one card from each deck. And the five decks that we're using are selective, selected because of the fact that they give you they give you light into different avenues of the. Into different avenues of, well, I guess the the foundations of your existence. That's a good way of putting it. So we have the trusty Ganesh deck. We have the Mystic Mondays deck. We have a uh, Demon Oracle deck. We have a regular Tarot deck. And we have an Affirmation deck. And ultimately, I have not... I haven't chosen any other cards. Essentially, I just shuffled them. And I have no idea what cards came up. You know, it's obviously the nature of a reading. So yeah, I mean, I already went ahead and drew the cards. I took a little bit of an intermission between the last little narrative and this current exposition to ground, draw, shuffle, etc. And I just want to get into it. The intention for this reading was set to give us a glimpse into the year ahead, a sort of blueprint for what we can expect or potentially expect and the roads that we can take and ultimately i have already drawn the first five cards from each deck and they do make sense they do make a lot of sense um we're going to start with in no particular order the ganesh deck and the card that we drew was number 32 steadfast well steadfastness and we're being beckoned to not waver back and forth or essentially be moved by the circumstances that may or may not be surrounding us at this time. It's uh, just focusing on purpose. That is what we closed 2021 in, and it's a bigger undertone this year. We've refined our purpose. We've declared ourselves as sovereign individuals that are working towards a goal in mind, and we are being called to be unwilling to falter or swayed to the left or to the right. In other words, we are being asked not to, or we're being reminded not to become a drifter. Ganesh is revealing to you that your efforts are not futile, even if you're not exactly seeing the results right now, but you are seeing the results. You're seeing results even though they might not be where you want them to be and you're going to continue to grow and it's just a reminder that you are an immovable object and that you are strong and that you know where you need to be this is a sort of maybe maybe you feel like you've taken a couple steps back or maybe you're not seeing the results in the time that you want them to be particularly like for example in my case this is a very a very three-dimensional example my weight like i'm trying to get specific weight goals in order to produce specific results in my running and even though i'm not seeing them exactly where i want them to be it's kind of a little frustrating at sometimes because it's like wow i'm doing all this work but i'm not seeing the results at the pace i want them to be and that's part of it you know it's it's a li- you need to you need to recognize that there's no real sense of accomplishment unless you give it to yourself And you may feel a bit unheard in your relationships, or maybe even with your relationship with yourself, because it's like, are your needs being met? Are you meeting your own needs? Because you know your boundaries, and you know how to reach your boundaries. But maybe there's an air that lies in the fact that in your heart, you really feel that your struggle is hopeless. And that is essentially what you need to remove from your mentality. You may recognize it on an intellectual level, but you are easily shaken when you reach when you see a little itty bit of adversity, or when you don't necessarily see the fruit of your labors being being granted. But don't worry, Ganesh is here and he removes these obstacles. Uh, you'll see in the picture that he is riding an elephant, and the elephant is to engage you in the energy of the elephant spirit. Elephants can teach you kindness, dedication, and communication in relationships as a very powerful tool to make your requirements or to manifest your destiny. They remind you that it is necessary to keep relationships alive, trusting, and loving, whether that relationship is with friends, family, or partners, a deep faith in all creatures with which they have relationships. Elephants are tough when protecting others and Gentile when nurturing them. The matriarch leads in a way that is both gentle and inclusive elephants are able to communicate telepathically when you draw this card your ability to truly listen to others is enhanced do whatever is necessary to safeguard your resolve you are receiving guidance that is the time to dig in to go within remain focused and do not get caught up in trying to create a change the energy in your job or relationship is ever changing and ganesh is asking you to ask him to call upon strength for you to be able to persevere through the essential well through essentially what's going on right now whatever that may be stay committed and stay on track do not give up and you will see that the change that you are looking for is just right around the corner that's essentially the undertone you know it's just like continuing to work on what you're seeing despite not always seeing effort it's the consistency uh, it's the consistency undertone that we've been playing upon for the last couple of episodes the last couple of months etc and it's pretty big in our collective as i'm seeing now transitioning into the next deck uh you've never seen a reading from this deck in this podcast before but um as i wanted to bring a little bit of everything into this reading i went ahead and drew from this deck And again, um, the symbology is only meant to illustrate specific things into your subconscious or into your personal psyche. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's like actual demonic entities or anything like that. Unless, of course, you're calling them yourself and this is the energy that you choose to work with. But ultimately, it's all up to you. And this is essentially just a sort of divination or energy reading that is going to take the shape and archetype of the specific deck but it doesn't necessarily imply malignancy or anything uh, along those lines and it's important for me to tell you this because of the fact that it's important for you to know but yeah um, the card that we drew was Flavros uh, the the Duke of Hell who is a general in command of 20 or 36 military units according to the daemonium. His appearance is that of a ferocious leopard and it is fitting to his military prowess. He can also transform into the shape of a man, but his eyes will retain the fires of his infernal origin. Flavros is said to be a liar who will beguile those who conjure him and try to coerce them under his command. He can, however, be bound with a magical triangle in which only he will tell the truth. However, that seems to be a test as far as Flavros is concerned. Once he is properly bound, uh, excuse me, uh the he is very glad to help you and more than willing to converse about heaven and hell and all the like um yeah so i mean it is as if he lies to those that don't that don't deserve him that he does not believe worthy of or prepared for his presence but once satisfied he will give his full assistance and attention to them in terms of divination, it's just reminding you to focus on unlikely allies. Nurture all the plants in your garden and pull the weeds out of the out of the roots or pull the weeds from the root and you will continue to grow. It's it's essentially like, how can you grow? Well, you need to look at unlikely allies. It's like, all right, so look in your circle, look at all the connections that you truly have and look at all the things that you can see. And what is it that you have not been essentially appreciating beyond the face value how how can you return to something that you've seen in the past or in the present and make it more of a personal experience so maybe for me in my case it could be it could be connecting with people who it could be connecting with a specific someone and talking about something in specific that you may know yourself essentially maybe some ideas that you know you wouldn't agree with but um, for example, um, radical Christianity is not for me, but maybe speaking with a radical Christian will give me the perspective that I need. This is—I'm not, not saying I'm lacking perspective or anything, but that's just a very random example. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, in all—in other words, it's like: Can do you actually deserve the? Do you actually deserve the fruit or the rewards that you want, or is it just a sort of mental masturbation that you think you deserve? Sense of entitlement and the hard work the steadfastness is what's going to be able to act as the catalyst in order for you to draw upon that power that reward that glory that you are so seeking and as we transition into the next reading the ace of wands is the card that we did go ahead and draw and the ace of wands as we know and have been told many times well through the arcana and all this stuff the ace of wands is essentially how you go ahead and you manifest and the will and the guile to be able to go ahead and create the actual reality that you want. It's talking about your inspiration It's talking about your awareness, your illumination, and your potential to go for it. You have awakened your unlimited potential by stepping deeper into your calling and into your personal power. You know the signs, and they are clearly speaking to you. And the Ace of Wands is what encourages us to become unapologetic in the process of chasing our dreams. Take up as much space as you need and allow yourself to expand. You can do anything that you set your mind to, and there is nothing holding you back the ace of wands is hallmarking this energy to you instincts over intellect follow your gut and this will serve you the best at this time illumination and inspiration are surrounding you you are aware and you are finding the support that you need in this breakthrough moment of your personal life Listen to your intuition and what it has to say because you have developed it. You can trust it and go all in and manifesting your desires so that you can watch them flourish over time. Your consistency has been created and you will take the time to level up with your fiery ambition and you will burn everything in your path. The possibilities are endless and the opportunities are bountiful. That's honestly such a powerful card as we transition into the following deck where we drew the hermits. And as we know, the hermit is essentially the, well, the loner guy that just see that, well, is finding wisdom and you're soul searching and reflecting and you're just finding truth. And in this moment, you are continuing to develop yourself. You've gone within and you've, focusing on your craft you're refining your art because you know that only you can refine it it's only you against yourself at the end of the day there is no real opposition other than the other than yourself There's no real opposition other than yourself and you are wide-eyed truth-seeking and you implore the deepest depths of your being so that you can know yourself in the ways that you did not know before. You are developing and finding deeper purpose even in the things that are mundane and normal. There was a certain restlessness with you and how you were living in your day-to-day and you have chosen to change it and the trade-off for that, it has become essentially you having to go within and illuminate your soul and essentially go on top of the mountain and look down upon the world not necessarily in a condescending way but observe the societal world from above as a recluse and that's nothing to be ashamed of because the hermit finds awareness and finds enlightenment in the solidarity and it's a choice it's a choice you know i mean some argue that the hermit is actually odin the archetype of odin uh, well Odin as a, as an older man rather than as a younger man and Odin is the hallmark of wisdom he hung well as we know he hung from the world tree and in the uh, in the search of wisdom and it's essentially what you're trying to do you're it's like your purpose is why do I want to know more how do I know more why is it that I am trying to find deeper meaning in the meaningless and why is it that this is applying to my life. Well, once you find that meaning and you transmute it into action, you have that effect on those around you. And ultimately, it's a ripple effect because as I've said before, the effects that you have on the people around you will have effects on the people around them. And then ultimately, the people around them will meet other people and other people and other people and it's a chain of events. And your soul searching has been a solo journey, right? But you may be finding yourself withdrawing from social activities and retreating inside out of choice. And you are maybe just, seeking to deep dive into yourself because you know that you can't really do this with anyone else you know that this is just a one person journey and it may be lonely in the beginning if this is just a new thing for you but ultimately as you are going deeper into yourself uh, you are going to see that you are more in alignment with your true mind with your true body and your true soul as you're finding new ways of consciously prioritizing your beliefs in your daily life, you see like less and less that you need the validation of others, otherwise otherwise known as, well, society playing. That's the game, you know, like, I mean, for the most part, we send we tend to like look exteriorly for validation and for our ideas to be validated correctly, essentially, that's what I'm saying. But you know that as you go deeper into the hermit archetype, you don't need that because your purpose is so, so affirmative in truth for yourself that you realize that even if the whole world says that you're wrong you just see that you see that reality better than anyone else and that's the sort of reality that only you can see which is actually beautiful because it transitions into the following deck the affirmations deck and this one is i am naturally consistent (laughs) check it out in my environments excuse me I got excited. I am naturally consistent in environments that allow my expansive nature to thrive. It's obviously the same undertones of purpose and consistency and steadfastness. And this is evidently the energy that is being presented to you here. You will not falter if you can remain consistent even amongst the shadowy nights, the darkness of uncertainty. You will not fall victim to the uncertainty that is your Well, your challenges, your challenges are there to make you a better person. You are a stronger individual when you go into the reality that you know what you must do by doing what you should do. Very cool. Very cool, team. This was a beautiful reading. As you see, I really got into the zone. Um, Yeah, that's called passion. very good very good um so yeah this year there's a lot of growth i mean you you put in the foundation in 2020 you did the work in 2021 and started seeing the results you gained momentum and you started flying and now you're really soaring and it's like where are you soaring to you're soaring to unknown lands and that's where the challenge is as i've said in previous episodes awakening or enlightenment isn't necessarily the end result that's the beginning of the story and that's where it takes you on your actual journey Your are adventure. adventure and this is essentially where we're going it's a year full of adventure a year full of grace and a year full of accomplishment i speak it into existence for me and every single listener listening very good team well i loved this i honestly love this energy i could keep on going for a bit but i think that i've gotten everything i need to get across across So I will, in fact, just go ahead and transition into my closing remarks. Um, They will be very short, but I just want to say thank you for listening. I want to say thank you for being a part of this production. Thank you for being someone that is committed to growth and self-development. And thank you for showing up for yourself through whatever medians and whatever avenues that you show up in. And I'll be in touch. I'll I'll be in touch. I did just end the recording, but this came to mind immediately, and I need to say it now before I don't say it at all. Have faith in yourself. Have faith in yourself. Give yourself that authority to have faith and to trust yourself that you can have faith in yourself. Have faith, and you will see the results of your faith. If you believe in yourself, that's all the energy that is required, but you just need to believe. like Believe and show up, and that is the actual formula for developing your ideas, developing your reality, developing what you want, and you need to be grounded. That's the first step. Be grounded and decide what it is. Well, you see, as I've said, you already know what it is. You've shown up and you've already set the work. Just continue having faith. That's the word. That's the word, faith. But all right, cool beans. Yeah, that is that is it. Now we are done. <laughs> see ya.